0: Gospel of John chapter 6. And there's a Bible on your table if you don't have one. And if you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you to the President's class, and I hope that you'll enjoy our Bible study. This is a Sunday school class. I don't get up here and preach, although some people think what I'm doing is preaching. I'm just going through the verses of Scripture, We read a verse, I try to explain it, we try to figure out why that verse is important for us today. And the Gospel of John, chapter 6, is one that deals over and over again with Jesus feeding people. He feeds the 5,000, then he identifies himself as the true bread that comes down from heaven. Uh, He talks about Moses feeding the people in the wilderness with manna for 40 years, And he said, but you know, when those people ate that food, they ended up dying. He said, but I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. If you eat this food, uh, you won't die. So, and this chapter, which deals with the bread of life, is one of those chapters that the church throughout history has uh, looked to when it tries to interpret the Lord's Supper or the communion service. Because there we have bread and we have wine. And those words are used in this chapter. And they have informed the way we do our communion services. So today we're going to pick up at chapter 6 and verse 36. Chapter 6 and verse 36. And we're going to go to verse 58. Okay? So, by way of summary, Jesus has announced that He is the bread of life Uh, And that he gives eternal life uh, to those who believe in him. Now when he uses the word bread of life, obviously he's using it as a metaphor. He's not literally bread, he's a human being. But he's like bread, that he is, bread is the staple of life, it's what sustains life. And he says, if you have this relationship with me, in the sense of, "If, if you're all consumed by me, That you will have eternal life. And then he levels a charge against his hearers. And that's where we pick up in verse 36. And here's what he says. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not, what, believe. In other words, despite observing Jesus, despite seeing the things that he does, like feeding 5,000 people... Uh, They're still unconvinced uh, that Jesus is the bread of life who can give them uh, eternal life. They do not believe that Jesus has come down from heaven and that He can provide eternal life to them. They're unconvinced by that, and they demand a, a sign. And in verse 37, He says this. You don't believe, and then He says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Now I want you to notice a couple things here. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus uh, believes or considers that those who come to him are gifts to him from God. You see that in verse 37? The Father gives me Uh, All that the Father gives me, come to me. So he considers those who come to him as a gift from God. Every person that comes to Jesus is a gift to Jesus from his heavenly Father. Second of all, as we noticed last week and other weeks, that the term come, and you see that in verse 37, come to me, and the term believe are used interchangeably in this chapter. So to come to Jesus means to believe or entrust yourself to Jesus. We see that, for example, in verse 36. Look what he says. Yet you do not believe. You see that? Do not believe. And then in verse 37, he says, All who come to me, come and believe are used interchangeably. You also see that in verse 35, for example. I'm the bread of life, he who comes to me. But look at the rest of the verse. He who believes in me. Do You see that? Come and believe are used interchangeably. So, to come to Jesus doesn't mean physically come to Jesus. It means to believe in Jesus, to entrust yourself to Jesus, to commit your loyalty to Jesus, and that's how he's defining these terms. Then, at the end of verse 37, he says this, And the one who comes to me, this is interesting, I will by no means cast out. Jesus will not reject any person that comes to him. Ever. <clears throat> so he's not going to reject anyone who comes to him. He welcomes us. He receives us. With open arms. A lot of people say, well, I'm too bad. And if I could come to Jesus, you know, he wouldn't accept me anyway. All who come to him... He will receive and he will accept. Now some people use this verse, verse 37, as a proof text for the doctrine of election. And if you read it just on the surface, it could be used that way. All the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will no wise cast out. But I think that's a, a misunderstanding of this verse and we'll be dealing with that a little bit later. Now look at the reason he accepts everybody that comes to him. Look in verse 38. Because, here's why I will accept everybody who comes to me. Because I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If Jesus rejects the one that God gives him, that's not doing God's will, is it? What would God's will be? What would God's will be? It would be to accept those that God gives him. So that's what he says. He says, you know, I will, I accept everybody who comes to me because, verse 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will. I'm sure there's a lot of people Jesus would have liked to have rejected. But I've come to do the will of him who sent me. So, to reject those that God gives him would be the opposite of God's will. Then he further explains God's will this way in verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So, here we have two things that's God's will. Number one, God's will is that those that come to Jesus, he will receive. That's the first part of God's will. The second part of God's will is found right here, that he will raise those people up in the last day. He will not only receive them, he will preserve them until the last day, in which he will raise them up, which speaks of resurrection. Now, when you think about this in light of John's Gospel, John's Gospel starts off with this. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? And so here we have Jesus. He starts off with his pre-existence, way back in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning, what does that make you think of when you hear those words in the beginning? Genesis. So way back then, in the beginning, here's the Word, Right? Then he becomes flesh somewhere around, you know, 4 B.C., okay? And then, not only that, in the last days he will raise up all that come to him. So that, exp- that spans from the beginning to the what? To the last day. Do you see that? Isn't that what it is in the last day? Yes, the last day. Verse 39, I'll raise it up in the last day. So from the beginning of time to the end of time, we see the ministry of Jesus. And so he's going to raise everybody up that comes to him the last day. And so they're going to have this eternal life, this life that's everlasting. Now, the next thing you see in verse 40 is God's will for us. These verses all deal with God's will. Now God's will for us. And this is the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son, that's number one, and number two, believes in Him, may have everlasting life, and I will, this is the guarantee, I will raise Him up at the last day. So notice two things there. First of all, if you see the Son, and number two, you believe in Him, then you have everlasting life, and you get that the moment you believe in it. Everlasting life. The moment you believe in it. And not only that, he will raise you up at the last day. So now that's interesting because we've seen those words before back in like verse um, let's say verse 30. Where is it? Verse 37? Is that where it is? <clears throat> huh? Where is it where it says that you've seen me? Back here, 36? Yes, look at this. Verse 36. But I said to you that you've seen me. That's how we started out the lesson. Remember that? I've said to you, you've seen me, and yet what? Do not believe, but look at verse 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who what? Sees me. And what? Believes in him may have everlasting life, and he'll raise him up. So here we see these people that Jesus is speaking to, they've seen him, but what haven't they done? They haven't believed him. So they're going to perish. They're going to (laughs) perish. Only those who see him and then believe on him will have everlasting life and be raised the last day. Now, that takes care of this little section. Now, beginning in verse 41, you have a a section that deals with the grumblers, is what I'm going to call them. I don't know how, how else to describe these people. But look at verse 41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. They have this, they start complaining amongst themselves. This becomes a big debate over him in previously saying, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Now notice that these grumblers are identified as the Jews. Do you see that? Uh, Which doesn't mean the Jews in general. I mean, obviously those who are believing in Jesus are Jews. Jesus is a Jew. This is referring to the Jewish leadership that is rejecting Jesus. And uh, those who have authority over people, maybe in the synagogues in the area of Galilee, And they're grumbling, and they are debating over this, or complaining, actually, over this issue that Jesus says, I am the bread which comes down from heaven, or which came down from heaven. It leads to two questions, okay? Question number one, down in verse 42. They said, wait a second. What's this, he came down from heaven? Look, verse 42. Isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? And the answer is, yes, it is. Joseph and Mary are your next door neighbors. And Nazareth is just a few miles away. These people know Joseph and Mary. And uh, so they're saying, "See, he talking about coming down from heaven? He comes from Nazareth. Remember what Philip said about Nazareth? Anything good come out of Nazareth? He's talking about coming down from heaven. He comes from the armpit, you know, of of the Middle East. What's he talking about, coming down from heaven? We know his parents. This doesn't make sense. And then they ask question number two in verse 42. How is it that he then says, I've come down from heaven? It doesn't make sense. It's nonsense. He must be beside himself. There's something wrong with this guy. See, that's basically the two questions that they ask. So now what we have is Jesus responds to them. And it's interesting. Look what he says in verse 43. He says, Therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. Stop your ripe. Right shut up, basically. <clears throat> Just shut up for a while. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him. <clears throat> And I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets. In fact, let's stop right there at verse 44. Look what he says. So he he responds by saying, shut up. And then he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Now... Jesus doesn't deal with their issue that I'm the bread that comes down from heaven, does he? That's what they're complaining about, right? Isn't that what they're complaining about in verse 41? He doesn't even deal with that, does he? He just launches into this other crazy topic. They must think, what now we know he's nuts? He doesn't even deal with the issues that we're talking about. He tells us to shut up, and then he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up to the last day. Now, <clears throat> Since no one can come to Jesus or believe in Jesus unless the Father draws him, that means in and of ourselves we have no ability to come to Christ. If no one can come, can come to Christ unless the Father draws him, that means in and of ourselves we do not have the ability to come to Christ. God must make the first move. God must take the initiative to draw us. Left to our own devices, we will not see Christ, we will not come to Christ. Now how does God draw us? Now watch. The answer is found in verse 45. Jesus says, It is written in the Prophets, You can go back to the Old Testament and read this. They shall all be taught by who? By God. This is a quote from the book of Isaiah, chapter 54. Now look at the next part of that verse, verse 45. Therefore, look, all are taught by God, therefore... Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father does what? Comes to me. Okay, so now what we have is we have this verse divides into two parts. First of all, you'll notice that the teaching, in the first part of verse 45, teaching comes from God. You see that? The teaching comes from God. God. God will take the initiative and he teaches us something. The second part of verse 45 is this. Everyone who has heard that teaching and has learned the teaching, learned from it, acted on it, has learned from the Father, comes to me. Okay, so this is the the key right here. So everyone who... Learns from the Father, because all teaching comes from God. And then acts on it, comes to Jesus. Now, how do you hear the teaching of God? That's the question. How would you hear the teaching of God in the Old Testament times? Who spoke for God in Old Testament times? The prophets did. Who speaks for God in the New Testament times? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is God's authorized representative and He speaks on behalf of God. So when Jesus speaks, God speaks. Why do we say that? Now if you've been with us for three weeks, you understand this. Because Jesus only says what He does what? Here's the Father. Jesus speaks on behalf of God. So, that's why the book of Hebrews says, In times past and in various ways, God spoke to our forefathers... Through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken. Up, God has spoken to us through his what? His son Jesus. So, Jesus is the one who speaks for God. When he speaks, it's God the Father speaking, and you hear that word spoken, and you realize that it's God speaking. If you reject the Word and you don't learn of it, you hear it, but you don't learn of it, you don't act on it, you reject that, then you do not come to Christ. If you do hear it and you act on it as a Word from God, you're drawn to Christ. So just think about that for a second. If you hear Jesus speak and you believe that He speaks on behalf of God, He's God's authorized representative. Then you'll act on it. And guess what? You're drawn to Christ. But these people, they've seen Jesus, they've heard His teaching, but they don't accept that He represents God, do they? And so guess what? They're not drawn to Christ. They don't commit their life to Christ. So that's what's happening here. So uh, you see that All that the Father gives to Jesus will come to Him, but the ones that He gives are those who accept Jesus as God's authorized spokesperson. Now, He clarifies this in verse 46. Look what He says. Not everyone has seen the Father except He who is from God. Now, not everyone has seen the Father. In fact, we can say that No one has seen the Father. He said that before. Isn't that right? But there is an exception. Who has seen the Father? He who is from God. That's Jesus. Jesus has seen the Father. He hears the Father. He sees the Father. He does what the Father does. He teaches what the Father teaches. Verse 46. He has seen the Father. That's why Jesus is God's authorized representative. And here's his conclusion. Most assuredly, I say to you, this is a truly, truly in the King James Bible, of a certainty, I say to you, he who believes, and the implication is in Christ, has, right now, not just in the future, has everlasting life. He who believes has everlasting life. So, what we say is this God speaks to people and draws people to Christ through the gospel, through the words of Christ, the gospel of Christ. And when, up until the time that you hear this gospel preached, you really don't have the ability to respond to God. You just sort of like you're in darkness. That's why we're told to go into the world and preach the gospel. If everybody could get to God without hearing the gospel, we wouldn't have to send out any missionaries, would we? If everybody was okay just the way they are, why send out missionaries? So God draws people to Christ through the gospel of Christ, and when we hear the gospel, something happens. Until we hear the gospel. Our will is in bondage. That's what Martin Luther called it. He had wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. He said, until we hear the gospel, our will is in bondage. You couldn't believe even if you wanted to. But when you hear the gospel and amazing things happen, your will is set free. It's no longer in bondage. You have a freed will. Not a free will, but a freed will. So, the difference between a free will is that, hey, we all have free will. Uh, And the scripture says no one can come to, to Christ unless what? The Father draws him, so obviously you don't have a free will. But when you hear the gospel preached, your will is freed. And now you have a choice. Now you can either accept the gospel and be drawn to Christ through the gospel Or you can resist that gospel. So what you have here is that these Jewish leaders have seen Jesus, they've heard his message, but they have not believed. They could believe, but they've chosen not to. They've resisted the gospel. They've resisted the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus turns and he starts dealing with this bread of life thing. So look at verse 48. Here's what he says. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. That one may eat it and not die. So now Jesus is making a distinction between the manna that gives life for one day at a time versus himself who comes down from heaven who gives everlasting life. He's the bread of life. Verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the world. Now, if these people thought he was crazy before, when he said, "I'm the bread of life," they have to believe this is the icing on the cake. Because notice what he says in 51: If anyone eats my flesh, what in the world is he talking about? This guy must be really nuts. You see. So, in fact, look at their response in verse 52: The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That makes wow, sense. that's crazy. See, we, we, we read these things and we don't even think what it would have been like to hear this and then a Jew in Jesus' day. This sounds like cannibalism, doesn't it? Eat my flesh. We, don't practice, we wouldn't practice cannibalism. What's he talking about? Eating my flesh. See. And notice this how, isn't it? You know what it says in verse 50? What, 51 is it? <coughs> 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What does this sound like? Do you remember anybody else that said something like this? Remember Nicodemus when Jesus said, you must be born again? And Jesus said, how can a man be born again? This is nuts. What's he going to do? Get in his mother's womb one foot at a time and get back in there? See? What's he talking about? How can he do this? See, they're taking it literally, just like Nicodemus took it literally. And uh, they're wrong. He's not speaking in literal terms. If he were, that would be cannibalism. doesn't make sense. So what does he mean when he says, eat my flesh? First of all, he's not using flesh in the literal sense. He's just talking about himself. He's giving himself for the world. Okay. Uh, so it's not in his body that he's giving, as you think of it. And what does it mean to eat my flesh? Well, what does it mean to devour a book? you literally eat the book? Not bad. <laughs> Doesn't mean that, does it? When you devour a book? It means you're consumed with the book. It becomes your focal point. You know, your focus is on that. He's probably talking in those terms that, you know, to eat splash means to be consumed by him, that you're totally loyal to him, that he's the focus of your life. So, uh, he must be our passion. I think that's probably what he's talking about in these verses. Then in verse 53, says this. If they thought he was crazy before, they'll really think he's crazy now. Let's look at 53. Then Jesus said, Most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and then drink his blood. Sounds like a Dracula type thing. Drink my blood. And drink his blood, you have no life in him. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. Notice it's a negative in verse 53 and a positive in verse 54. If you don't do this, you don't have life. If you do this, you do have life. Uh, again, it's not literal. because How do we know that he doesn't want us to literally drink his blood? Well, first of all, you'd have to kill him and drain him of his blood and start drinking his blood. So it can't be literal, right? And also we know from Leviticus 17 that the Jews were forbidden to drink blood. It's part of the whole kosher food law. So they, it's not talking about literal blood. So what's he talking about when he's talking about drinking his blood? What does he mean by that? Well, again, this takes a little bit of creativity, but I think we can find out what it means. There's a story in the Old Testament about King David, and um, the Philistines have attacked Israel, and they've taken over the city of Bethlehem. David's been driven out of the area, he's up in the hill country, you know, escaping for his life, and he's been up there for a few days, and he says just off the cuff. Boy, wouldn't it be great just to get a nice cold drink from the well of Bethlehem? <laughs> It'd be great just to get a drink from the, bel- from the well of Bethlehem. But of course, he can't get back there. And I want to show you what happens next. Okay? So I want you to keep your finger here and I want you to go over to First Chronicles. Okay? First Chronicles. So just start at Genesis and start moving forward, Psalms. And you'll get through the Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, you know, Kings, keep on moving until you get to 1 Chronicles. And look at 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 1 Chronicles chapter 11. And this is the story, and I won't go into all of it, but I'll just read you a couple of the verses. And you'll see very quickly how this applies to what Jesus Jesus' stated of that drinking blood, okay? So look down at verse 17. 1 Chronicles eleven seventeen. 17. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. He's just talking out loud. Sure could use a drink from Bethlehem's as well. So, the three, these are three of his cohorts, soldiers, broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem. (laughs) They took him literally, and they go out and do it, and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David could not drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood, look at this, Shall I drink the blood of those men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their own lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. These things were done by three mighty men. David did not want to be seen to personally profit from these men risking their lives for water. To drink the water he says, would be equivalent to drinking their blood because they had to literally put their lives on the line. Now we've all heard of blood diamonds. That's where somebody profits off the backs of other people who put their lives at risk to get the diamonds and they call them blood diamonds. So, that's what happens. This blood concept is profiting off the back of others. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, drink my blood. See, that's what Jesus said. He invites us to profit or benefit on the basis of Him giving His life for us. That He risked His life for us. He calls upon us to profit from Him dying on our behalf. Drink my blood. In this sense, we're drinking his blood because we're taking advantage of his risk on our behalf. And he says, when you do that, he says, then you have eternal life. Now, that's the only other place in the Scriptures where that phrase is used about drinking the blood. And when you see how David uses it, you can sort of find out, you can sense how Jesus is using it in the sense that uh, he's risking his life for our benefit and he says, take advantage of it. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to give my life for the world. I'm here to give my life for you. So to drink His blood is basically to allow Him to complete His mission and do what He's sent to do. And then back in John 6, it says this, verse 55, For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Uh, abide means to reside together. <clears throat> when you as it, Abide is as a, as a, a derivative of the word abode. We, we dwell together. You will dwell together. Who dwells together? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, remember, we had the word come. Come is equal to the word what? Believe, and believe is equal to the word, in this case, eat. So, come, believe, and eat all mean the same thing. They all have that same concept to uh, focus your attention on Jesus, to put your, entrust yourself to Jesus. Verse 57, he says, As the living Father sent me, and I live, Look, as the living Father sent me... All their gods are not living gods. They're they're dead gods or idols. As the living Father sent me and I live, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. So we are to be consumed with Christ. And then he says this. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Using a lot of symbolic language. <clears throat> now, one thing I want you to see is that there's a refrain in these verses that we've been looking at that's repeated four, repeated four times. It's found in verse 39. Look at this. And I should raise it up the last day. You see that in verse 39? Look at verse 40. I will raise him up at the last day. You see it again in verse 44, I will raise him up at the last day. In verse 54, I will raise him up at the last day. So if I said to you, what would be the most important sentence in this little section that we covered would be what? I will raise him up in the last day. It's very possible when the early church, when the uh, Gospel of John was written and the early church got copies of the Gospel of John, And they would read these passages, they would actually read them responsively. And by that I mean, for example, if I look at verse 39, it says this This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing. And then the people would read, What? But raise it up at the last day. And then the reader would say, This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And the people would say, Raise him up at the last day. And you'd see a similar thing in verse 44. No one who comes to me comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And the people would say, And I will raise him up at the last day. And then again in verse 54 Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And the people would say, I would raise him up in the last day. last verse there is, and you will live forever. So that's the point that Jesus is making, that in him there is life, and there's no life apart from him. He gets his life from the Father. The Father who lives gives the life to Jesus, and Jesus who lives gives the life to us, and eternal life is through Jesus Christ. It's not enough to study the life of Christ. It was not enough to be in the presence of Christ and see his miracles. In order to have this eternal life, it was was necessary not only to see Him, but to believe in Him and to commit your life to Him. In time, uh, the early church, after Jesus died and was resurrected, the early church started eating a meal together called the Lord's Supper. It was a full meal, it wasn't a piece of bread and a little bit of grape juice or wine. It was a full meal. And, uh, you know, I've dealt with this in my book, and I've talked about this in the past, in our Sunday school class. But in time, that gave way. Uh, The Roman government became very suspicious of Christians eating meals together. They thought subversive things were going on. And there were a lot of subversive things. So basically, they cut out all meals... And so the early church, uh, after the meals were stopped, began to take a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine or grape juice, and they began to eat this piece of bread, and they would say, this represents the body of Christ, and they would quote John chapter 6. And if you eat this, my body, you'll have eternal life, and then they would say, And hey, if you drink my blood, and they have a little bit of wine, and they would drink the blood, you'll have eternal life and you'll be raised up. And they began to look at that little communion service as the means or a sacrament which gave everlasting life versus the meaning that we're supposed to understand that Jesus is speaking figuratively, that he's not talking about his real flesh and his real blood, he's just talking about his person that he's given to us. Uh, given for us, and that we are to believe and commit our lives to Him. And that's how the communion service sort of evolved over time. And then there became big big debates over the nature of that little piece of bread and the nature of that little cup of wine. Did it represent Christ's body? Or the Catholic Church said when the priest consecrates the piece of bread next it changes into the body of Christ supernaturally. Or... Does, uh, like the Lutherans say, that uh, the, the Christ comes and indwells and in the piece of bread and is in the presence of people. And great debates came over this little piece of bread and this wine. And many times they would turn to the John passage to support their particular views. But when you look at John's passage like this, the real point is if you believe on Christ, if you come to Christ, if you devour Christ, He's your all-consuming passion. You'll have everlasting life when you put your faith in Him and one day you'll be raised up into the kingdom of God. So we'll pick up in verse 60 next week. <coughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for a very difficult passage of Scripture that's forced us to, uh, to struggle. <coughs> we can never get these things quite understood to our satisfaction but we can get the gist of it. We can uh, realize when people are using scripture as proof text to support certain doctrines or certain views of communion and we are trying Lord to do something else we're trying to understand the text uh, as it was these events as they uh, transpired in the life of Christ and with those people right there in Capernaum Lord I feel that we have a sense of what was being said I feel that we have a sense of what Jesus was requiring of the people they chose not to hear Jesus They rejected Jesus as your representative, your spokesperson, your last envoy, a last day's prophet who spoke for you. And as a result, they were not drawn to him. Oh Lord, help us to do otherwise. Help us not only to believe in Christ, but live for Christ. Help us to be his hands extended to a world in need. In his name we pray, amen.